thank you very much. I, I think I already watched once here, so it's nice to be again. Thanks also for the nice introduction. Only at one point I was in a panic when you started with uh, by buying books here. I was terribly afraid that you were going this totally manipulative races here, you know, like uh, the Starbucks coffee approach. With every book you buy here, you save a child in Africa. <laughs> No, it was good. <laughs> okay, so I have many things to say, so let me begin. Uh, I will not, of course, read from the book. I always find this, uh, found this uh, tasteless, like as if you treat yourself as a classic and then you <laughs> make some, uh, some variations, some supplements to the book based on the book. So since the topic of the book is violence, and to make a little bit more propaganda. This short book, Violence, is really to be read together with the big fat verse book, which appeared at the same time in defense of lost causes, which is much more outspoken politically. Okay. Uh, what I'd like to begin with is the topic of violence and language and speech, because I think that here maybe it's easy to discern where I differ from the predominant opinion. Uh, let me begin with Walter Benjamin, who in his critique of violence raises the question, is any non-violent resolution of conflicts possible? Benjamin's answer is that such a non-violent resolution sorry, is indeed possible in what he calls quote, relationships among private persons, courtesy, sympathy, and trust. There is a sphere of human agreement which is non-violent to the extent that it is wholly inaccessible to violence. It's the proper sphere of understanding of language, end of quote. Here I respectfully disagree with Benjamin, and I think he himself implicitly moves into a totally different direction with his speeches on divine violence. That is to say, this thesis of Benjamin belongs to the mainstream tradition in which the prevalent idea of language and the symbolic order is that of the medium of reconciliation or mediation, of peaceful coexistence as opposed to a violent medium of raw confrontation. The idea is that in language, instead of exerting direct violence on each other, we are meant to debate, to exchange words, and such an exchange, even when it is aggressive, presupposes a minimum recognition of the other. The entry into language and the renunciation of violence are thus understood as two aspects of one and the same gesture. We find this same underlying hypothesis in philosophers or thinkers as different as Jürgen Habermas and Jacques Lacan. The whole basic premise, as you probably know, of Jürgen Habermas's communicational ethics is that there is an ethics which is, as it were, inscribed into the very normal functioning of language. It's the immanent normativity of speech acts as such. So that, as Habermas emphasizes, when we use violence, sorry, language to instigate violence or aggressivity and so on, there is kind of 
pragmatic, if not logical, contradiction. We, as it were, use language against its nature. A similar idea, although of course in a totally different theoretical context, is found in Jacques Lacan's psychoanalysis, at least in the early phase of Jacques Lacan throughout the 1950s, where again the thesis is that we have this imaginary immediate confrontation of subjects where it's always me or you, no mediation, and then the function of language precisely is to enable the resolution of direct confrontation through symbolic mediation. Language is peace, exchange of symbols, trust, and so on. As Lacan puts it, even when language lies, even when we lie, we lie against the background of a dimension of truth. Even, or we can even paraphrase this and say, we can also paraphrase this and say, even when in language we attack, we attack against the background of a recognition. I can humiliate you whatever, but isn't it that at a more elementary level, I already presuppose you as a partner of communication who is in a way formally equal to me. Okay, what I want to advocate now is that this the, the opposite of this thesis. I think that uh, what if humans exceed animals in their capacity for violence precisely because they humans speak? What is what if there is a dimension of violence in language which is much more fundamental than direct confrontation between me and another human being. It's easy to say language brings a medium of symmetric understanding of reciprocal recognition, but isn't it that the very medium field you want to put it naively, categories, horizon of understanding of this mutual recognition is never neutral. There is already, as it were, it's already twisted, out of balance. And this is the fundamental violence, the violence which we can experience at its purest in so-called multicultural misunderstandings. For example, I can live in the same apartment with members of other cultures, but nonetheless, in a way, and we all understand what I mean by this, we live in different worlds. Where by world, of course, I don't understand it. I don't mean the uh, reality, the totality of real objects, but the horizon of understanding of this totality. How is this totality, that is to say, the structure of meaning, the way I understand reality, how is it articulated? what meanings are hegemonic, predominant, and so on and so on. And isn't this, in a way, that's the thesis of Martin Heidegger, with whom here at least I agree, isn't this, in a way, a much more radical violence? The violence of the two of us not fighting for the same object. For example, gold. That's elementary violence. Is there a more elementary violence if we see the same object in its immediate stupid reality, gold, but it means something totally different to us. Like, for example, as we all know, for a medieval person, gold was an incorruptible metal, which is why it was considered divine, kind of a 
representative standing of the divine indestructible dimension among the, the, the our within the field of our uh, reality or whatever. Let's take another dimension from the history of singing, the castrato voice. For medieval and early modernity, it was the voice of angels prior to sexualization, prior to the fall. To us, the same voice is some abominable monstrosity. So, you see my point? This is violence. This violence of imposing a totally different horizon of misunderstanding. This violence is covered by Heidegger. But I claim there is another dimension of violence, this, and this you find in my book, Violence. Now I want to autocritically, self-critically supplement my book. There is another dimension of violence, of language, which is missing in Heidegger, and which is the focus of Jacques Lacan's theory of the symbolic order. Throughout his work, Lacan provides variations on Heidegger's motive of language as the house of being. Language is not man's creation or instrument. It is man who dwells in language. A quote from Lacan. Psychoanalysis should be the science of language inhabited by the subject. End of quote. Lacan's paranoiac twist, however, his additional Freudian turn of the screw, comes from his characterization of this house of being, language, as a torture house. Quote, in the light of the Freudian experience, man is a subject caught in and tortured by language. End of quote. So, not only does man dwell in the prison house of language, remember the title of Frederick Jameson's early book on structuralism, man dwells in a torture house of language. The entire psychopathology deployed by Freud, from conversion symptoms inscribed onto the body up to total psychotic breakdowns, are scars of this permanent torture. So many signs of an original and an irreducible gap between subject and language. So many signs that we humans cannot ever be at home in our own home, which is language. This is what Heidegger ignores, this dark, torturing other side of our dwelling in language. And this is why there is also no place for the real of jouissance, excessive enjoyment in Heidegger's edifice, since the torturing aspect of language concerns primarily the vicissitudes of libido. This is also why, in order to get the truth to speak, it is not enough to suspend our active intervention and to let language itself speak. That's the usual attitude of wisdom, which is also Heidegger's. Let's not be active subjects in the Cartesian sense of manipulating language as object. Let's adopt the passive is not the right word, but the listening attitude of allowing, of letting it be the dimension of wisdom, the message which is already implicit in language itself, as Heidegger likes to put it. The proper speaking is at the same time hearing, listening to language. 
Uh, in contrast to this thesis, I prefer to follow Elfriede Gelinek, you know, the Austrian writer, who put it with extraordinary clarity, I quote, language should be tortured to tell the truth. End of quote. It should be twisted, denaturalized, extended, condensed, cut, and triolited. In short, made to work against itself. Language as the big other is not an agent of wisdom to whose message we should attune ourselves. It is a place of cruel indifference and stupidity. What do I mean by this? Let's think about proverbs, which are language at its purest. I think, let's admit it, there is something inherently opportunistic and stupid in proverbs. Whatever you do, it can be covered up by a proverb. For example, I risk an act, and then what can happen? I succeed. There will always be a wise guy who will say, yes, only those who risk profit or some, you know, some kind of wisdom. <laughs> then let's say that I do exactly the same thing, but I fail. Again, there will be a wise guy who will say, I don't know what you have been in Slovene, have a vulgar saying which says something like, you cannot urinate against the wind. The disgusting opportunism of wisdom. Anything is covered, you are always the wise guy. The most elementary form of torturing one's language is called poetry. Not a complex form like sonnet does to language. It forces the free flow of speech into a progress back of a fixed shape of rhythm and rhymes. So what about Heidegger's own procedure of listening to the soundless speech of language itself? No wonder late Heidegger's thinking is poetic. Recall the means he uses in interpreting poetry. Can one imagine a torture more violent than what he Heidegger does in his famous reading of Parmenides? You know, he twists the proposition, he changes the, the syntax, and so on and so on. It's an extremely violent reading. And it doesn't go only, it doesn't refer only to language. Cinema is the same, I think. Let's look briefly at two opposite directors who the second really hated the first one, the two Russian classics. First, Sergei Eisenstein. You remember when he develops his early notion of montage, cutting, montage of attractions, the metaphoric he relies on is extremely violent. It's the natural flow of images, and then the point of a director is to cut combine always the language of brutal intervention. Tarkovsky, the great opponent of Andrei Tarkovsky, of uh, Eisenstein, as you probably know, he was opposed to this. His idea was no, no violent cutting interventions through cinematic art must be more intensive, like with long shots and so on. You allow the event or the presence to come into its own passively. But I claim it's merely a different form of torture. If Eisenstein can be called the poet of this more active sadistic torturing, you combine, Tarkovsky practices a cinematic equivalent of what, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in English you call it medieval torture instrument, a wreck where they stretch. <laughs> That's what Tarkovsky is doing, and it has wonderful effects. Tarkovsky was very well, he said, if you just 
shot a normal event, like in his maybe masterpiece Mirror, a girl in panic running to, uh, running to the newspaper printing house because in Soviet Union she maybe overlooked a mistake, misspelling Stalin's name in an obscene way, this would cost her her life. If you shoot this normally, it's like nothing, just a girl running there. But what Tarkovsky does in his mirror is he protracts this scene into quarter of an hour, endless running, <laughs> puts it on the red, and you have the so-called aesthetic effect. So I can well imagine Eisenstein and Tarkovsky, if they were to meet, debate as two torturers, let's say a Latino-American colonist torturer and a KGB torturer. One says, no, it's better to cut prisoners, the other says, cut and squeeze the testicles, the other says, no, just stretch them and... <laughs> But you see my point. My point is that uh, I like this line of thought, which also goes against the so-called postmodern historicism, which is the linguistic historicism. There is an irreducible plurality of beings. All we can do is tell stories about it from our irreducible, specific historically specific horizons of meaning, and again, as so-called postmodernists like to emphasize, there is no a priori universal medium of communication. All we can do, the ultimate, the only appropriate universal ethics is to allow the space for this very plurality. As Richard Rorty like to emphasize, everyone should be allowed to tell freely his or her story, the story of his or her uh, happening. What I think is that, on the contrary, one in a very traditional way even, I like to follow Hegel here, who claimed that when we think, we think in language, of course there is no thinking outside language, we think in language but against language. This is the, if you want, torturing aspect. Thinking is not natural to our, well, everyday thinking, which is passively embedded in language. Thinking is literally counter-natural. And as such, we can, with great effort, torturing effort, uh, we can force language to formulate, we can make it receptible to some translinguistic truth. truth this procedure of torturing. So let me again refer to Benjamin. You probably know all Benjamin's classical opposition between mythic violence and divine violence. Mythic violence as the Staatsbildende, uh, 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 as the state forming violence, the obscene dark background of state power, what your noble vice president Dick Cheney likes to call the dark side that we should not talk too much about. <laughs> and on the opposite, the redemptive emancipatory violence, the so-called divine violence. And I think this covers the two violences that I mentioned till now. The violence about which Heidegger talks, this violence inherent to the very imposition, to put it simply, of a symbolic universe, or to put it in Heidegger's terms, a certain disclosure of the meaning of being. This would have been mythic violence, mythic violence of language. 
entscheidung der Konsens doch about Mythos. Mythos as a certain articulation of the meaning of being. To put it in very simplistic terms, which I know violate Heidegger's strict terminology, the way reality appears to us as meaningful, how we experience it. This is primitive violence of language. But what we don't find in Heidegger, and I think we should supplement here, Heidegger would have been the divine violence of language, which is precisely this torturing of language, not Staatsbilden, that is to say, not Sprachbilden, but Sprachzerstörung, destroying of language, in the same way that Heidegger talks about uh, talks about, uh, sorry, that Benjamin talks about divine violence as self-stirring, as destroying the state. So I think this is why, if you read my book on violence, even if you looked at it, I hope you got the point, which is that it's a defense of violence. We need violence. Emancipatory violence, the act of liberation is always a violent act. Where, where, what do I mean by this? I recently saw, after 20 years, Bernardo Bertolucci's, okay, it's a little bit naive, old Stalinist epic, uh, Novecento, the 20th century. And I was nicely surprised by a beautiful thing uh, about uh, half an hour into the field, where the workers in that large estate in northern Italy protest to their master who because of owner, who because of economic crisis wants to lower radically their wages and he tries to explain to them it's market, it's this, it's that. They said, but we are starving, we cannot. They, and then he explodes and says, but do you have ears? Don't you understand? Are you so stupid? You can, cannot even hear what I'm telling you, economic necessity and so on and so on. And then it's quite a nice shocking scene. One of the workers takes out a knife, this kind of a crooked knife for special uses, and cuts off his ear and gives it to him, like here you have our ear if you want, and so on. There is always something like this in, in, in redemption, in gaining freedom. Freedom hurts. So, now let me go on a little bit. Uh, how do these two modes of violence function in art? Ah, let me begin with a poem. Now, okay, this was the difficult part. Now we move to more obscene matters. Let me quote a short poem. Listen carefully. Convert to my new faith, O crowd. I offer you what no one has had before. I offer you inclemency and wine. The one who won't have bread will be fed by the light of my son. People, nothing is forbidden in my faith. There is loving and drinking and looking at the sun for as long as you want. And this Godhead forbids you nothing. Oh, obey my call, brothers, people, crowd, and so on. And I think it's a great poem, but it's a correct poem. Its author is, of course, I hope to go the joke, Radovan Karadzic, the third one criminal who is now in hell. And I think it's, uh, he got it correctly. I mean, uh, it's, what he describes is a carnival. It's an obscene divinity which calls you through him, who is the spokesperson of this divinity, to, to, to an eternal orgy of transgression. You know, you will be fed by the life of my son, wine, loving, drinking, nothing is forbidden in my faith, this Godhead forbids you nothing, and so on and so on. What I'm trying to, tell, to say here, 
two things. First, that this provides an important key to the functioning of so-called ethnic religious, however we call it, fundamentalism. It's not as some stupid sociologists try to convince us that today's fundamentalism is a so-called escape from freedom. Like you know, that's how the story goes. We live in postmodern times, which are uh, no longer in advanced permissive times, no longer overdetermined structure by a firm set of values. We are free with an overload of freedom. We have to choose everything from uh, up to our sex orientation, religion, ethnic belonging, and so on. And the idea is that this radical uncertainty, this lack of the daily coordinates, firm ethical and so on coordinates, causes anxiety. So people who cannot endure it escape backwards into a real or invented tradition which provides a kind of a sense of certainty. I claim this is at the best one side of it. What is much more important is exactly the opposite side. I learned it with a rather nasty personal experience where over 10 years ago, in the early 90s, I visited Belgrade and in a cafe there, a total mistake comes, met some people who probably were so-called ethnic slaughterers, whatever we call them. And they got the lesson of a lifetime for them. What they basically told me is what fear of freedom. For them, they told me it's modern liberal society which is oppressive and over-regulated. As they told me, what kind of liberal freedom is this? I cannot rape a woman I like, I cannot beat my wife, I cannot smoke, I cannot kill the person I hate, and so on and so on. For the way they experienced uh, ethnic fundamentalism was that it's uh, a movement to apparently you go back, but in this way you are free. You proclaim yourself, I don't know, servant of your nation, and off we go. We can go to Bosnia, we kill, we rape, we are free. For them, it was new freedom. And it's not only they who said this. Uh, already Adorno, I advise you to read Adorno's of the Frankfurt School, uh, text from late 30s already, very interesting one, on the, I think that's the title of the text, the, the psychological structure of fascist propaganda. Well, he wonderfully, in a wonderfully perceptive way, and directed probably against the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, simplifications of Wilhelm Reich and other sexual revolutionaries. Adorno emphasized how Hitler is, Hitler is not a figure of paternal authority. Hitler is an, a kind of a fake permissive figure that we shouldn't be seduced by Hitler's explicit language, which says something like, enough of Weimar Germany, decadence, immorality, corruption, time of discipline, our country, our country first, uh, our country needs us, sacrifice for your country. That's only the superficial message. If you know to read between the lines, the true message is, Pay lip service to this, obey me, and we can have some fun. <laughs> like, kill the Jews, we can have our own carnivals, and so on. It's the same I claim with uh, whatever, for example, with uh, Ku Klux Klan here, and so on. This is how it functions, you know. Pay lip service to Western civilization, Christian values, and 
if you live in the small town in the south of the United States in the 2030s, and every weekend we can have a little bit of fun, rape some black girls, lynch some black girls. But this is absolutely crucial. This moment of false carnivalesque opening, of false liberation, which is absolutely crucial for every so-called totalitarianism up to Stalinism. You will say, ask me, where is this in Stalinism? My God, you know who is the greatest theoretician of carnival? Very popular even today, Mikhail Bartin, the Russian fellow traveler of formalism. A friend of mine who now teaches, I think, in, in New York, the Russian immigrant who otherwise worked in Germany, Boris Groys, told me that now recently they discovered some private papers, notes of Bakhtin from, I think, the city of Kazan, where he survived the Stalinism, inside there, the, to work in the library. And they demonstrate clearly that Bakhtin's big work on Carnival, the title is Portraits of Francois Rabelais, the, the work of the creativity of Francois Rabelais, uh, was really a coded attempt to understand <coughs> Stalinism. For Bakhtin, he knew it very well. Carnival was not, you know, this what leftist fake leftist, like, like, oh, the rules are suspended, at least momentarily, the king is beggar, the beggar is the king, we have liberation. No, for him, Stalin is purges, and some trials for a big carnival. It's exactly like the king is a beggar. Today you are, yesterday you were a member of the Politburo, today you are an English spy or traitor or whatever, no? I mean, it was effectively carnival at the high point of Stalinism from 34 to 37. Just look at the data. In two years and a half, 75% of the Central Committee were shot. 80% of the Army headquarters were shot, and so on and so on. So you cannot even say, as they usually say, this, I think, totally false thesis of Stalinism as a new class society. No, it wasn't that the new nomenclatura oppressed ordinary people under high <coughs> Stalinism. The most dangerous place to be was nomenclatura. I mean, if you're an ordinary guy, you had like to be cynical 15 to 20 percent chance to die. If you are top nomenclatura, it raised to 70 to 80 percent to die. So you see what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, let me give you another proof, and then we move on. Uh, uh, a wonderful description, I quote it in one of my early books, so I dare to repeat it, of how Alexander Tianich, a leading journalist, of how he described the Milosevic rule in Serbia in late uh, 90s of the last century. Quote, Milosevic generally switched the Serbs. In the time of his rule, Serbs abolished the time for working. No one does anything. He allowed the flourishing of the black market and smuggling. You can appear on the state TV and insult Blair, Clinton, or anyone else of the world dignitaries. My uh, uh, footnote, in brackets, this is literally true. When NATO was bombing Yugoslavia, I remember clearly watching on satellite TV some talk show on state TV, where in the background there was a big poster. You will understand it if you just remember that this was the time immediately after the Monica Lewinsky scandal, where everybody had it, that fallacious scene fresh in mind. It was on state TV, big letters. Bill, are you crazy? Did Monica also suck out your brain? On state TV. Let me go on. Furthermore, we quote, Milosevic gave us the right to carry weapons. He gave us the right to solve all our problems with weapons. 
He gave us also the right to drive stolen cars. I mean, the stealing of cars and smuggling from West Germany, especially, was so popular at that point that some West German tourist agency, which tried to revitalize tourism in Serbia, uh, proposed, of course, as a comic attempt, a wonderful publicity slogan, enjoy our Serb hospitality, visit us and your car will already be waiting for you. <laughs> Milosevic changed the daily life of Serbs into one great holiday and enabled us all to feel like high school pupils on a graduation trip. Which means that nothing, but really nothing, of what you do can be punishable. And I guarantee you, end of quote, that this is, of course, only in some sense, but nonetheless, in some sense, true. You, to visit, for example, and it's not the only case, to make it very clear, I'm in no way anti-Serb. If anything, of all ex-Yugoslav nations, the Serbs have, I claim, the greatest democratic potential historically. I think the reason Milosevic succeeded there, it's difficult to explain, but it has a lot to do with the specific situation of Yugoslavia, of its disintegration, and so on and so on. So, it effectively, to understand Milosevic, it effectively, you should Bear in mind that it effectively worked like that, like a kind of a false eternal holiday. It's precisely the atmosphere you find, that's why I don't like him excessively, in the films of Ender Kusturica, you know, underground and so on. This permanent orgy, drinking, copulating, and so on. The second thing I want to draw attention to, which is a little bit more problematic, but I think crucial, is that how nicely a certain notion of poetic transgression, of poeticization, aestheticization, aestheticization of daily life fitted into it. No wonder many poets, cinematic poets like Kusturica, serious literary poets like the German Peter Handke, were absolutely uh, uh, fascinated by Milosevic's rule and saw in the Serbia of Milosevic a kind of poetic counterpoint to our aseptic, commodified, and so on, Western societies. And I claim it's all too simple to claim oh, what I'm talking. Karadzic was a ridiculous poet. First, okay, I'm not a specialist in poetry, but uh, I doubt if, you know, in, uh, there is, a, how do you call it, a corpse in the closet, which is people who today make fun, I know this as ex-Yugoslav, of Karadzic as a poet, forget how in the early 80s, like in Slovenia there was a nice character, but the very guy who today dismissed Karadzic as a blasphemy, it was discovered that this same guy uh, put together in Slovene language an anthology of recent Bosnian and Serb poetry, where he gave quite a prominent role to Karadzic, absolutely. No? Uh, and again, there are many others in Yugoslav republics who are undoubtedly serious poets, the greatest, who also, how to put it, laid the foundation for ethnic cleansing and so on. I claim that if you look at countries around the world where ethnic cleansing went on, you always discover, I claim, some Karadzic, like Rwanda. I checked it up, there is, it's called Hassan Ngeze. He's the Karadzic of Rwanda. A journal, Kangura, where he systematically was systematically spreading anti-Kutsi hatred, calling for their genocide, and again, he's the big national poet. So, 
you see my comment, which is that, uh, 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 how should I put it, this link between the suspension of ethical rules, this violent, fundamentalist violence, whatever, and poetry, it's not, one cannot dismiss it so simply, so simply. There is a deeper link here. No wonder so many modernist poets were, were proto-fascists, or at least deeply sympathetic to fascism. Just the great English guys, of course, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, uh, 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 William Butler Yeats, and so on and so on. So, if I may put it in this way, uh, maybe Plato, who is in such bad, who's uh, investment value is low today, compared to the I tend, after my political experience, I tend to sympathize more and more with this idea that poets should be thrown out of the city. Of the <laughs> in, in Yugoslavia, it would certainly have helped. What happened in Yugoslavia is what? It's that you in the West, you have so-called industrial military complex, we in the Balkans, we had a, I call it, poetico-military complex. That is to say, poets with their national dreams combined forces with the military, with killers. And you can. And it works. And again, my point is, it's all too simply to dismiss this as bad poetry and so on and so on. It's not as simple as that. But now, let's move a little bit further into theory. So, this obscene side of language, this transgressive side, which is only indicated in between the lines, like in the case of Hitler, I told you, the explicit message, sacrifice, country, ethics, German spirit, the implicit message, obscenity, carnivalesque murder, and so on and so on. This is crucial for how ideology functions. This is crucial for the violence to discern violence, which is part of our language. There is uh, one of the masterpieces of Hollywood left, John Carpenter's film, maybe you saw it, it's what it's naive but nice. They live from 1988, which I think stages this scene of ideology in a naive but very nice way. It's a story of a homeless worker who stumbles in a lonely abandoned church on a box of sunglasses and when he puts them on, he discovers that he is able, they're like ideological critical sunglasses. <laughs> when he has the sunglasses on, he sees the real ideological message. For example, he goes out on the street and sees a big publicity poster, visit Hawaii, honeymoon, enjoy life, and so on. Okay, all in color, uh, naked couple swimming, he puts the glasses on and sees the message. Don't think, consume, obey, money is your God, or something like that. It's a very naive idea, but I think it's basically right. Especially if we supplement it with its opposite. I think that ideology today functions on both levels. One level is this, is where the explicit ideological injunction is apparently non-ideological. That is to say, it's just a reference to our spiritualized hedonism. I think that today, when people talk about the end of ideology, of course it's nonsense, but they are describing a real change, which is that today, how should I put it, 
the society does not address us in its superego dimension with uh, some, in the old-fashioned sense, ideological call to sacrifice to your duty. It's more generally something like, again, spiritualized hedonism, like be who you truly are, like kind of a, somewhere between Dalai Lama and Sex Manuel. Like, be who you truly are, realize yourself, realize your potential, don't waste your life, be fully who you are, all that stuff. But then you need the ideological glasses to see the real message. On the other hand, a more traditional functioning of ideology, which is, I claim, still operative, is on the contrary that you get the ideological injunction directly, like, as I already said, apropos of Hitler. Sacrifice yourself, do your duty, and then you get between the lines implicitly the obscene message. <coughs> and again, all, always when we confront ideology, and we confront it all the time, I think one has to take into account these two levels. For example, uh, let me take one example which is today present all around. These permanent calls to, uh, to give charity, to sympathize with the plight of the poor. Of course, the poor in third world countries are really starving, suffering, and so on. And it's good to do something about it. What worries me is again the, the ideological burden you buy with it, that comes with it when you participate in the practices of charity. Like, what? Okay, let's imagine you watch a TV and you see uh, publicity, you know, this usual disgusting manipulation, like, uh, I don't know, you see a staff, African child with distorted lips and so on, can lips, and then the words say something like, Are you aware that for the price of one or two cappuccinos? you would save the life of that kid and so on and so on, something like that. Okay, let's ask ourselves, what would have been the message you would have seen if you were to put on this, from David, ideological glasses? I claim something like, don't think, don't politicize, forget about the causes of their poverty, just contribute a little bit of money so you will feel good and you will not have to think. I think that's the blackmail which is key. The idea is uh, it's, uh, it's this, how should you put it, depoliticization. This, you know, like, it's like a superstitious item. Give a little bit and you will feel good. And you don't have to think about it. Which is why uh, I claim charity is so important today. I claim charity is a crucial ideological phenomenon. It's no longer as 100 and more years ago in the times of Carnegie, you remember, when charity was kind of idiosyncrasy of some of them. Today it's, as it were, part of the, part of the, part of the system. Did you notice how the leftist rhetorics of 20, 30 years ago, where all leftists like to say to us who live relatively comfortable lives in uh, the developed West, we live in a that was the critical point. We live, in a, uh, we live in an ivory tower. Are we aware that outside our secluded sphere there are millions who are starving and so on and so on? But today, guys like Bill Gates say this. I claim it today, this reference to those poor people outside our ivory tower are central to the functioning of 
hegemonic ideology. Because what's the message again? The message is, as it is here, if you read, for example, Bill Gates' treatises on creative capitalism and so on, the message is, again, forget about all these old ideological fights, socialism, capitalism, people are struggling, fighting, people are starving there, let's do something, let's come all together, uh, uh, capital, private manufacturer, state, let's just do something, and so on. I think it's precisely a, a blackmail not to do. No, I mean, to do something so that you don't have to think. And I claim that this is then also connected with a great shift of capitalism in the logic of capitalism, especially the logic in how we consume after 68. The way capitalism in the last 30, 40 years triumphantly integrated in its own way the message of 68. What do we mean by this? Uh, there are three ways we are solicited by publicity, by the media, to buy and consume products, products to simplify it. The first one is the simple utilitarian one, referring to real properties of the object. No, like, you want a Land Rover, the publicity will tell you it, it is very strong car, you can really climb up mountains, it is a good machine, uh, uh, large space for large space for for uh, large space for 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 all the for all the travel bags and so on. Whatever it refers to, like some kind of properties of the object car. Then the next level would have been the one characteristic of the 50s, 60s, 70s of the consumerist society, the level of. Uh, uh, keeping up with the Genesis, status symbol, competitive. The idea there, the most subtle propaganda would have been by a Land Rover, they would require to assert your social status. They gently, softly appeal to Land Rover as a status symbol, if different modes. But I claim today something different is happening. Maybe it's not crucial, but it's more important foreground. It's neither the actual properties, nor status symbol, competition and so on, but it's something like, uh, how should I call it again, in this new age terms, your authentic experience, the reference to your three, true self. Today's, today's publicity would have emphasized, do you want to break out of the constraints of alienated city life and feel authentically connected with the earth? You want to realize your creative adventure potentials by you know what I mean? It's like a way. Everything is a way to be authentically yourself. The clear example of this logic, I think, is, for example, among other things, is uh, organic food. I'm deeply suspicious. You really think? Don't tell me that you. Why are you buying? Do you really believe that when you buy those? Usually they are more rotten apples which cost rather the price of the normal chemically genetic Do you really think that you are avoiding some great risk and so on? I don't think. I also don't think that it's a big status symbol or whatever. I think it's more to render your life meaningful. Like, you know, isn't it nice you consume, but 
you have this deep disgust in narcissistic satisfaction that you participate in something great, you know. But the Starbucks manipulates this nicely. And whenever you enter it, usually you have there some message that basically is with, with each overpriced cup of uh, cappuccino, you say to a Guatemala giant or whatever. <laughs> the catch is that it makes it an experience ethically satisfying, life has meaning, you participate in something meaningful, it's not just stupid consumption and so on and so on. This is the reality of the end of ideology, which is, again, uh, ideology at its uh, Ideology at its worst. And this, I think, uh, uh, works at uh, different levels. Now, to cut it short, not be too long, uh, I would like now to give you another example of this everyday presence of ideology along these lines, to give you a kind of a very short diagnosis. What is the typical functioning of ideology today? My starting point would have been Hollywood films. I mean, I love them because they are, I think, the best tools which enable you to grasp directly in a shortcut where we stand. For example, who are two of the latest hits? Dark Knight, The Last Batman. Did you notice what's basically the final message of this film? It's the necessity of a lie to save the dignity of the public authority system. Remember what happens at the end, that the district attorney, who is supposed to be first an ethical hero, is discovered that he really was the murderer, and then, at the film's end, Batman decides to take the murders upon himself, because it would have been too demoralizing for the public, the trust, to render it public that this guy who was leading the fight against crime was himself a murderer, and so on and so on. And then, my God, we asked ourselves, how did it function in Stalinism? This was precisely how, in Stalinism, you were addressed as a victim. The idea was, we know, between the lines message again, we know you are not really guilty, but the party needs sacrifices, because there were difficulties, and if you do not admit that you was sabotaging, you were sabotaging, then people will blame the party and, the, and so on and so on. So it's interesting that, again, the film which is after Titanic, next mega hit, focuses precisely on the necessity of a lie. It's basically in the line of the old uh, John Ford to Master Physics. You must know it, Ford Apache and the men who shot Liberty Bell, no? where it's, the message is also the necessity of a lie to ground a civilized system. But with John Ford, it's more ambiguous. Here, I think, in, uh, another thing which is pure ideology in Dark Knight is this, which I hate it because it even, it's even done with some pretension, as if to make it more, how should I put it, artistic. Did you notice how, that's how the story goes. They tell us that in the last film, Batman, and the same goes for Spider-Man, blah, blah, is no longer just a flat cartoon hero. We see the hero with his weaknesses, anxieties, fears, and so on. As if this rendering it complex somehow makes it more artistic or whatever. I think that precisely this reference to personality, this reference to we are not just ideological categories, we are real, warm people. This is ideology at its purest. 
this is what avoids you to confront the consequences precisely of your public acts. But another film where we get today's diagnosis at its purest would have been, I really like him, I saw it five times because of my son. It's more, it's uh, Kung Fu Panda. You notice how the film's symbolic universe is structured, that it combines in a very enigmatic way, if you notice it, two opposed attitudes. On the one hand, it's fully part of this uh, new pseudo-Buddhist whatever orientalism, no? Kung Fu, Panda, Sacred, Prophecy, uh, The New Master, and so on, it's all this uh, pseudo-orientalist stuff of faith, chooses a hero, and so on and so on. But uh, at the same time, did you notice that the film is full, full of cynical, dismissing jokes? Like they make, at the same time, they make fun of the time, of all sacred references and so on. Sometimes I must, uh, I must, I must admit it even in a rather intelligent, platonic way, like when the hero Penet Panda, the fat guy, before he becomes Kung Fu, penetrates the, big thing, the, the building with all those sacred objects, he sees a painting of some, I don't know, mysterious, and he says in a very nice platonic way, I've only seen a, a, a picture of pictures of this picture till now and so on. It's, it's elegant. But what I'm saying is that uh, crucial is this apparently inconsistent combination of two opposed attitudes. On the one hand, all this sacred stuff, faith decided, this, how should put it, religious ethics of, sacred rather, ethics of Kung Fu warrior chosen by faith, all the pseudo-Buddhist stuff, and on the other hand, this typically Western, brutally realistic cynicism, systematic making fun of everything sacred, but are the two of them really so exclusive? Remember, if you've seen the film The Central Message, I quote it. It refers to the search for a special ingredient in the film, which is the special ingredient which makes you a Kung Fu Panda warrior, which is the special ingredient which makes the soup such a good soup or whatever. That's the lesson, I quote. There is no special ingredient, it's only you. To make something special, you just have to believe it's special. End of quote. I think this is the fetishist split at its purest. The message is, I know very well all this Buddhist stuff about faith is shit and so on. I know very well it's shit, but nonetheless I believe it. And that's our ideology today. We live in cynical times, but cynical times not in the sense we don't believe in anything. No, we make fun, but this making fun covers up our deeper belief, which is not explicit belief, but we act as if we believe. Permit me to quote an old, maybe you know it, story, anecdote about Niels Bohr, which makes this point perfectly. Niels Bohr, you know, the Copenhagen guy, uh, he was once visited by his friend in a country, country house in Denmark, where Niels Bohr had, above the entrance to his house, a course. Horseshoe. I don't know if it's here the same. In Europe, it's a superstitious item allegedly preventing evil spirits to enter the house. And then the surprised friend asked Niels Bohr, but wait a minute, do you really believe in this? Aren't you a scientist? Niels Bohr answered, of course, I'm not crazy, I'm not superstitious, I don't believe in these words. Then the friend asked him, but why do you have it? 
Newsport provided the perfect answer. It was. Of course, I don't believe cops should really prevent evil spirits to enter, but I had it there because I was told it works also if you don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't believe in democracy, whatever, but we believe that it works even if we don't believe it. <laughs> and this is an old formula. It was already, I don't have time to go into it now, which was already long ago uh, formulated very nicely by, I think it was in the 60s, by Golda Meir, at that point the Prime Minister of Israel, who was once asked, do you believe in God? And she gave a very nice answer. She said, without answering it directly, I believe in Jewish people and Jewish people believe in God. But you get the point here. The point is that she wasn't a studying and to believe because of these ordinary stupid people who naively believe. Nobody has to believe. Everybody has just to suppose that, presuppose that another one believes and believe, a belief functions socially. Like, for example, I don't know our uh, uh, old stories about uh, Santa Claus. Who believes in Santa Claus? Nobody. If you ask the parents, they say, of course, we don't believe, we pretend to believe just for our children, not to disappoint them. Then, of course, you ask the children, they say, I'm not crazy, but I believe in it not to disappoint the parents and <laughs> <laughs> You see the point? Nobody has to believe. But altogether, if just everybody pretends for another fellow sense to believe, the system of belief functions. And the truly shattering experience is not for you not to believe. That's not a problem for us. Nobody believes. Uh, but to, how to put it, to, uh, to uh, really assume that there is no other to believe in your place. Like, let me give you an example from cinema. Which, did you see, I hope you did so that I don't have to spend time uh, telling you the story. I hope you saw, uh, what you call, uh, uh, La Vita e Bella. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Roberto Benigni. You notice what happens there. The story of La Vita e Bella. Uh, the guy, father, in order to survive the, uh, the concentration camps where he is with his son, father pretends that it's not a, for the son, small boy, that it's not a concentration camp, but just a big competition where, if you, where you are free to leave any moment you want, but to show, to, to survive it and so on, and then you get a prize. I claim in the film would have been much better and more shattering psychologically if we were to learn at the end that the small boy didn't believe in it but just pretended to believe to make it easier for his father. That would make it, that would make it a, much more, a much more complex uh, film. Now, okay, uh, time is running along these lines. I wanted to go a little bit into how I claim our democracy functions more or less in exactly the same way social network, you must know the rules. But that's not enough. If you just know the rules, you are an idiot. You know, like those when, when upper classes still had manners 50 years ago, you remember, you had all those institutions which taught you, like, you know, good manners, like, come to us, we'll teach you how to behave up. Then you do it, you go, mix with upper classes, you are an idiot. Why? Because you learn the rules, but you don't learn the way you have to violate the rules. That is to say, crucial for symbolic space, and this is the space. This gap is the space of ideology. 
crucial for the functioning of symbolic order is not only the rules, but how we relate to the rules. There are rules which we take, which prohibit something, but the message between the lines is you are idiot if you follow it. The prohibition is a call between especially sexual rules. Something is prohibited, which means do it, but discreetly. There are even much more interesting counter-rules, which are opposite rules, which are rules which allow you something on condition that you don't use the freedom. You are given a choice on condition that you don't use the choice. This, this is my book's uh, 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 offers to be rejected. You know, all these strange situations like, I don't know, let's say I do something horrible to you and I apologize. What's the proper thing for you to do? To tell me, of course, listen, you don't have to apologize, it's not necessary. But that's the proper way to accept my apology. Or, you know, all those proverbial situations like, I don't know, I, let's say I rich, you are poor, which is not true, but let's say, <laughs> then I invite you to dinner. Of course, when the bill arrives, you have to insist a little bit that you will pay, no? But we both know that uh, I will pay at the end, but it's politeness. All this stuff where, again, there is an apparent choice which has to be rejected. At this level, again, ideology functions. So, very briefly, if you allow me, yes, and to conclude, uh, why do I think our present situation now is ominous? Because I think what is changing now are not so much the, the explicit rules as the implicit rules which tell us how to relate to the explicit rules. This, this thick network of implicit customs that Hegel, my favorite philosopher, would have called Zitlichkeit uh, or objective spirit, the substance of customs, of morals, not morality in this abstract sense, but just this network of presuppositions which are the basis of our freedom. We should never forget a point made by a guy with whom I disagree politically, but I appreciate him very much as a philosopher, Robert Pippin, the great Chicago Hegelian, of, on, in a wonderful essay on civility. He emphasized how these elementary rules of kind behavior, how we address each other, and so on, this is an absolute condition of free individuality. Without this substance, in the sense of thick network of implicit rules, it should be, as it were, our second nature. We obey them spontaneously. We cannot act as free individuals. So what worries me is if things change at this level. And to conclude, just two points. First, uh, did you notice, for example, how suddenly things change at the level of this implicit rule with regard to global warming. Did you notice how up to, I would say, around a year ago, even less, the predominant reaction to those who warned that there may be a catastrophe ahead was, uh, these are exaggerations, we don't really know it, it's a paranoia of ex-communist apocalyptic people and so on. All of a sudden, a year or less ago, the tone shifted, all of a sudden, Global warming is accepted, like, what's the problem? Of course it will happen, but the message is now, we should also look at the good side of it. When you get upset, it's like a report announced on CNN on 
the greening of Greenland. Like, wait a minute, they already grow, 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 grow shallot and uh, whatever on Greenland and corn and if the ice melts on the Arctic. How it will be much cheaper to bring uh, all the cheap stuff from Chinese gulags. This is, I think, a terrible moment when something which, at the level of this gut sense of ethical substance, was unacceptable, is all of a sudden normalized, as if nothing happened. And the same way, again, is happening at different levels. Let me give you an example from the United States and an example from Europe. In the United States, uh, Okay, it's the obvious example, torture. And again, I repeat it always. I'm not naive when people tell me, but how can you criticize the United States for torture? When aren't you aware that in China or where they torture much more? I know, but what worries me is the surface. What worries me is that all of a sudden it became acceptable to talk about even if you don't accept it. But nonetheless, the topic is acceptable. We publicly debate it. I consider this a regression. Why ethical? Let me give you a, a, a parallel. Imagine, Ray, would you, if you are willing, or man, would you like to live in a society where you would have to debate all the time should the women be raped or not? No, I would like to live in a society where when somebody advocates rape, he simply disqualifies himself. You know, he's a jerk. Don't take it seriously. I would be very much worried if all of a sudden we would have to argue why women, women shouldn't be raped. And I would like to be the same with torture. Or in Europe, we have something, for example, I remember till five years approximately ago, there was a silent pact that radical right-wing, right-wing neo-fascist parties are, should not be considered as, should not be allowed to participate in power. This was kind of an absolute pact. They are out. All of a sudden, the prohibition was suspended. First Austria, then Italy, and so on and so on. These changes, which are not the big visible changes, it's what, it's what effectively worries me. And to conclude, uh, uh, if you read the Republican National Convention at this level, with the glasses of they leave Like, okay, okay, they are talking this, but what are they really? What's the message? I think we should be also a little bit worried. I will not go into obvious things that we all know, but I think it's a pretty tragic event. First, I claim the American liberal left is paying the price for, first, its politically correct stupidity, the way feminism was squeezed into politically correct uh, jacket and the, also the ignorance of working class in the sense of, you know, working class of the stupid redneck, anti-family and so on and so on. All today's leftists in Europe, even more than here, I'm not practicing America better now, they feel very much ill at ease with the working class. No, 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 they are the old-fashioned, they are, uh, today's left likes, you know, new dynamic managers who are as Tony Negri put it, almost communists already, and so on. So what I'm saying is that uh, there's the revenge there. Something important happened at the level of these implicit rules. As Jacqueline Miller, who, who I'm again politically opposed, but he made a nice observation apropos Sarah Palin, is that something nonetheless happened here, which is what? That's his thesis. I think it's problematic, but basically 
colegi. Deci, Till Sharapelin, to cut a long story short, feminine politicians played a role of, like, phallic women, in the sense of more men than men themselves, as people, you know, like Margaret Thatcher, my God, Indira Gandhi, up to Hillary Clinton, there was something of that. Sharapelin functions in a different way. She fully she fully publicizes her femininity, and at the same time, she practices this feature of femininity, which is the so-called distrust of male phallic authority. This, like the way she dealt, I think it was a masterstroke of public relations, the way she dealt, you remember, that orgy of ha-ha-ha community organizer. All of a sudden, Obama appeared as a kind of a, what in psychoanalysis we call phallus as a fake, as a semblance, fake authority, and so on. This feminine sarcastic undermining, I think, effectively something new, something new emerged here. Even more important, if we put, again, yeah, 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 <laughs> if we put the glasses on, don't we get, and that's where things get complicated for me. At a certain level, I don't have time to do a more detailed analysis now, but I think it's clear that all this talk about change, change, no? If you put the glasses on, the message is, of course, change means we will change things so that they will basically remain the same. No? I mean, it's absolutely clear, no? But, uh, but here things get more complicated. First, here I think the pact that Republicans are proposing to ordinary Americans is a pretty obscene one. And I'm, I claim this is not that, this is not, that's not crucial. This is not a dark plot, a secret. That's the part which is, if I put it in these terms, explicitly proposed between the lines to the people. It's okay, they appear to refer to your populism, like their basic reference, enough of, you know, all these stupidities, enough of Washington, enough of great corrupted central administration, and so on, and so on, less taxes, less debt, and so on, and so on. Uh, I claim that the message between the lines is, don't take it seriously, let's have a nice explosion, but nonetheless, we have the backroom boys who will do the proper job. The message is, the opposite one is, trust us, we will do discreetly the proper job. Which is why I were to be able to talk with John McCain, I wouldn't ask him these stupidities like, do you, are you sincere or not, but who is your Karl Rove, you know, like, whenever you play this populist role, there must be a manipulator behind, you know, that would be there. But the second thing, more important, is that nonetheless, things are not as easy as that. What I suspect is, you know, whenever we have this kind of cynical manipulation, not cynical in the sense of tricking people, but cynical in the sense of you can trust us, that's the basic message of Republic. Like, we play with working class mother, the first youth, hockey mom, whatever, but like, the basic message between the lines is don't worry, we will do the same as before, everything will remain the same. But you know, words are never just words. What worries me really is that they will really change, change something for much worse. What worries me is that they sincerely, cynically think that it will be just the same show going on. You know, because this kind of a Republican revolution it repeats itself every, I don't know, seven, eight years. 
I remember when Newt Gingrich became speaker. It was the same. It was on the cover of Newsweek Time, Revolution in NATO. But uh, what if they will really change something? Like I, I don't. I hope they just manipulate. <laughs> That's the sad thing. If they don't just manipulate, if they really want to change things in the direction into which they point. That's the real danger. The real danger is that they mean it seriously. I'm sorry if I was too long. Thank you.